Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. Good morning. Well, half of you think it's a good morning. That's an excellent start. Great to be here. I want to talk today a little bit about some defining moments um, because right over this weekend, and we're going to hear about it for a number of days, there are defining moments that we've been talking about. And of course, we hear about 9-11 quite a lot and uh, there are services in the US at the moment uh, commemorating what happened. It was a defining moment for many people. Uh, The season that we're going through at the moment with COVID, that's going to define us as we go forward. There are things that define us as we continue to to live our lives. And you probably would have heard the question over the last couple of days, where were you when 9-11 happened? And people are going to be asking those questions about, oh, what were you doing when, when COVID first struck? There are many defining moments that we have in our lives. So I want to talk to you today about a defining moment for me. And On the next slide, you'll see a picture of some children in Haiti, and they are some children that I met back in 2008, because back on that day, I had experienced one of the best and worst days of my life. You see, I had been invited on that April day to to visit Port-au-Prince in Haiti to see the work of Compassion. I was there on behalf of 98.5 Sunshine FM, where I used to work, and they asked for a group of Christian radio announcers from different stations around Australia to head across to see their work so that we could talk about it on the radio when we got back. And I thought, well, I'm up for a bit of an adventure. That sounds like a good thing to do. I'll do that. Compassion seemed like a reasonable organisation. So I think, yeah, I'll I'll jump in and I'll go. I don't know too much about them. But, hey, I'm up for a flight halfway around the world. This is exciting. I didn't quite know what sort of an adventure God had in store for me and what he was going to do. You see, we were meant to be there interviewing children and later their parents were going to come and we were going to have the opportunity to to interview those parents as well. So that's what we were there meant to be doing. But as it turned out, the, the parents started turning up and just taking their children home. And we're thinking, what's what's going on here? Because you see, in 2008, it was the time of the, the global financial crisis and that meant it was also the time of the global food crisis where the price of even the most basic of foodstuffs was just too high for people to pay. And so they had told us that there were going to be some, some unrest in some areas and so we needed to, to change what we were doing and visit different people. But we only got to see that one church that was part of a compassion project before we realised that things were a bit dangerous and we started to go back to the hotel. You see, they said there was unrest. What it was was riots because the people had said to the president, you know what, we can't feed our families and so therefore if you do not do something, we're going to riot in the streets. And the president had been dismissive. He said, well, if you're going to do that, you let me know when because I'll come and join you. And so the people did riot. You see, they couldn't afford even the most basics for for their children and so the riots continued And what was actually happening was that there were families who were just mixing a little bit of water, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of oil, and they were mixing that up with the dirt outside their homes, drying that out into mud pies and feeding that to their family just so that they would have something in their stomach. 
That's how it was in Haiti while we were there and we realised we needed to get out. As we started to head back towards the hotel, we, we turned into the main street and there were people flooding down towards us with fear in their faces and they're saying, don't go up there, don't go up there. So we couldn't go back to the hotel. We went into the compassion office, we went upstairs, we were looking through uh, down on the street below us, quite some distance down below us and seeing people coming past with big lumps of wood and, and metal like star pickets and things like that and we realised that standing next to a window was not a good plan even though we were quite high up and we stepped back and as we did there was this loud bang and glass shattered right around the room and we just dropped to the floor I, I really can't actually remember what I thought at the time whether I thought it was a gunshot or what but I did know that I needed to drop down to the floor and be safe and so that's what we did and we crawled to a room out the back of the compassion office and started to discuss what now what do we do now? We don't know whether those people outside have, have seen that there are people in this building and they're, they're going to rush in and try to overtake the building, so we just had to remain quiet. All this time, the compassion staff are busy on the phone. They're trying to organise, how do we get out of this? And at the same time, thinking, we've got four Australian radio announcers from across the country, from different Christian radio stations, and we promised to show them a bit of compassion. This isn't what we wanted to show them. How, how do we actually show them that? And eventually, they came back and said, you know what? We need to get out of this country. It's not safe here. So what we're going to do, we have arranged for a trip to uh, Dominican Republic, which is the other side of the island that Haiti is on and they said you can come with us there or you can just go straight home we know that this has been traumatic and you can just go home if you want three of us decided that we would continue on and eventually when things calmed down we went out to these four-wheel drives and were driven back to the hotel and the thriving streets that were there before were now just decimated there were buildings I remember there's um, a service station it looked a bit like a BP BP colors not the same branding but on the way in and that was just operating like a normal service station and on the way back it looked like it hadn't been inhabited for years there was no piece of glass still in place there was nothing on any of the shelves it was completely stripped bare because people just wanted to find whatever they could to try and feed their family and that's the mess that we were caught into. In fact, one news source described it this way. They said the Haitian capital was paralysed by food riots yesterday as the United Nations gave warning that soaring food prices were spurring unrest around the world. Rioters returned to the streets in Port-au-Prince a day after UN peacekeepers had to fire rubber bullets to prevent hungry Haitians from storming the presidential palace. Columns of smoke rose over the city as demonstrators demanding that the government take action over the rising price of foodstuffs such as rice, beans and oil set fire to barricades made from tyres. At least five people have been killed and more than 20 injured. Protesters compared the burning hunger in their stomachs to bleach or battery acid. Next day, our, our trip to the airport was eventful, to say the least, as we headed down and found that more and more streets were blocked off by these barricades of burning tyres and having to go down these narrower and narrower... Well, it looked like the Heritage Trail here, just rocky ground, but we just had to go and they kept getting narrower and people were swarming around the car thinking, well, here's some people that probably have some money. And so there were people trying to incite the group to actually overthrow the cars and, and get what they could. Uh, there was a guy with a metal bar, I remember, who was trying to incite the crowd around and, and we had what was going on translated back to us by those that were with us from, uh, from Haiti. 
and uh, they were saying, come on, come on, let's, let's take these people. And then someone said, stop, look. And they pointed to the sticker on the side of the car and they said they're from Compassion. They help our children, let them go. And we continued on. And we came to another place where we couldn't go forward. And eventually, uh, one of the, the guys who was with us was actually the vice president of Compassion in that area who had grown up in Haiti. And he walked out and, and he found someone in the crowd who said, I can find you a way out. And so we slowly followed them as they walked and we slowly drove. And we found our way and eventually turned around a corner and there's this crew cab ute. Because at this stage, we didn't know whether he was leading us to his friends or whether he was actually finding us a way out. We had no way of knowing, but we couldn't stay where we were. And so as we turned around, saw this crew cab ute with a bunch of people on the back with semi-automatic weapons and thankfully police vests. Um, and this guy that was from Haiti actually walked with his arms up in the air. And uh, he actually reminds me a lot of Denzel Washington. So we've picked Denzel to, to play him in the film version of our escape from Haiti. But he, he walked up to the vehicle and explained what was happening. And we got an armed escort uh, from there to the airport to be able to get out. And that's the only way that we were able to get out of Haiti because of what was going on, the rioting that was going on. And it was interesting that as we um, taxied down the runway, eventually after a long wait, we taxied down the runway and I'm looking out and, and it's just surreal because in the grass alongside the, the runway, there's kids playing soccer. And as I look across the city of Port-au-Prince, there's columns of smoke going up everywhere as people continue to riot and, and just try and find food for their families. And as the plane lifted its nose and we took off, there was this sense of, we're safe. And at the same time, realising there's eight or nine million Haitians there that would never be able to afford a ticket, never be able to get out of that place, and they had to live with the circumstances that they were in. And we know that Haiti has continued to be a very troubled place. Uh, there was the earthquake in 2010, then there's been political unrest all the way through, and then just within the last couple of months, another massive earthquake, and then torrential rain a couple of days afterwards. But as we, we taxied and, and we took off, I decided I need to speak out on behalf of children. I need to speak out on behalf of those who have no voice. And so that was a defining moment for me. It defined what I was going to do. So I continued to work in radio for another five years until the job that I'm currently in came up at the end of 2013. And I took the opportunity to apply for that job. And that's where God has had me for almost the last eight years. So I want to talk today about the way that we share hope, a hope that is more powerful than poverty, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to share hope with these families who had no way of exiting that situation. How do we reach out and share hope? How do we demonstrate love for those in need? How do we share that goodness with those people? And most of us, of course, have heard about the, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that You've probably heard preach many times and I know that as soon as I mention that you think, oh good, I get to switch off for the rest of the message because I've heard it so many times before. I know all about it, but I'm asking you to come a little bit deeper with me today. My challenge is that we looked, look beyond the familiar to see what this parable is saying to us today. Because Jesus ends the parable of the Good Samaritan with the words, you go and do likewise. And our question today will be, are you going and doing likewise? So we start in, in Luke. I'll be reading Luke 10, 25 to 37. It'll be up on the screen. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that this lawyer would have been someone, not, not like a lawyer who, who tries cases in court, but he would be someone who would have been an expert in the law of Moses, the, the Torah. He's a religious figure who is trying to see what Jesus has to say on this question of eternal life. Interesting that he's, he's actually seeking a legal answer to what is essentially a spiritual problem. He's looking for a, a legal answer to a spiritual problem. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Interesting to see here that the the expert in the law was simply trying to, to justify himself and his actions more than he was actually interested in Jesus' teaching. He was wondering how small he would have to spread this net of neighbourhood. How many people did he have to love as himself to fulfil this law? How many boxes did he need to tick to just make it across the line? In verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Like, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. A Samaritan, a foreigner. Someone with different beliefs, a person that was hated by the Jews. Surely he can't be someone that, that comes out well in this story? Surely not. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is about two days' wages. So not a massive amount, but not insignificant. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? Ah, you've got me there, Jesus. I've got to answer this correctly. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, we we love to read this story and we think how awful the priest and the Levite were to leave this man on the side of the road, beaten and half dead. The man in Jesus' story would have been naked, covered in his own blood. He would have been absolutely motionless on the ground there. And so often we turn this story of the Good Samaritan as just a Sunday school lesson to say, be good to other people, be nice, do nice things. And yet there's something so much deeper in here. You see, the Levite would have become unclean if he came into contact with a dead body and they had no way of knowing whether this guy was alive or dead. So he did his religious duty and kept going. And the priest, he knew part of his job was to to avoid anything unclean and he would be defying his call if he went over to him. So he just kept going as well. See, their behaviour is consistent for what they stand for. Ritual holiness is a mark of respect for God's law and worship. And the man at the side of the road, the victim, he's unclean. They can't go to him. And I wonder if we ever let our own beliefs actually stop us acting in a Christ-like way. Do we sometimes think that appearing godly in the sight of others is more important than appearing godly in the sight of God himself? The Good Samaritan story asks what it means to love your neighbour as you love yourself. 
Loving your neighbor as yourself is something that we all want to do. You know, we see it again in Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. That's what Jesus says. And many would say that this is summing up the, the Ten Commandments. It's those commandments that are about how we interact with God and those commandments of how we interact with others. So they're being summed up in these two and we see it right throughout Scripture. But in a world full of need, it can feel like an overwhelming call to be loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. If we're honest, we, we can struggle to, to follow Jesus' instructions to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. What if this neighbour is someone that I disagree with? What if my neighbour is different to me? What if my neighbour is antagonistic toward me? But thankfully, God is full of grace and compassionate and he, he helps us in this, trying to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. He gives us his word, including things like the story of the Good Samaritan to, to illustrate how we can love our neighbour as we love ourselves. See, the Good Samaritan chose to see the need. The Good Samaritan was moved in his soul. He saw the need in front of his eyes. He, he saw the stranger. He took pity on him. He didn't just look away. And that's exactly what Jesus is recorded as doing in Scripture. He saw the need of others. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the need. And it's interesting that when you read through the scripture, it's almost like the priest and the Levite, that they're coming along on the same side of the road as this man and they crossed over. They, they wanted to, to get away from him. But it says the Samaritan, he went to him almost as if he's on the other side of the road. He sees him and it's like, I just can't walk by. I need to walk over. I need to, to make the effort. He saw the need. He answered the cry. He wanted to go to the man and... and, and to, to bind up his wounds, to put him on an animal, to take him to where he could get help. The Good Samaritan wasn't hindered by the fact that he was different. He overcame difference. The Good Samaritan was willing to cross political, racial, cultural and social barriers and prejudices to, to actually make a difference. And we can think of those that you've probably heard before of he didn't know whether the robbers were still in wait. Is this just a, a decoy and, and as soon as I go to help, they're going to, to rush out? He didn't know that. But I also wonder about what's going to happen when this Samaritan goes back and, and he's talking to his friends and it's like, oh yeah, I was, I was going along on the, the track and there's this Jew who was, hang on, what? You helped a Jew? Don't you know they hate us? We hate them. So there, there's this very high likelihood that this guy would have been spurned even by his own friends. He was doing something that was not popular amongst the Samaritan people and that was to actually help someone who was Jewish. I mean, helping a fellow Samaritan, that's one thing, but helping a Jew, why would you do that? And yet he crossed that barrier, so he overcame that difference. He didn't see someone in need and say, oh, I prefer to help this kind of person or that kind of person. He saw someone in need and he went to him. The need was obvious. So how can you help your neighbour, both the person in need on your doorstep and your global neighbour that you've never met? Think through that. What has God placed in your hand to help the poor? And the, the Good Samaritan refused to give up. Verses 34 and 35 of the parable tell us that the Good Samaritan didn't just patch up the injured man on the side of the road and move on. He actually patched him up. 
He put him on the, his own animal, took him to the inn and said, here, take care of him. And he did something really significant. You see, he didn't just say, okay, he's now your responsibility. This is a guy from a different class, uh, different beliefs, a different, different ethnic group. And yet he didn't just say, oh, look, I see the need, I'll, I'll fix it up and then, okay, he's your problem now. He actually goes there and he says, you know what? I'm not the best placed person to continue to care for this guy, so I'll take him to the inn. And he says to him, says to the innkeeper, he says, I want you to look after him. Look, I, I'm a traveller, I keep coming by here, and so here's the two days' wages to, to cover costs for now, but I'll be back here from time to time, and, and as long as it takes for this guy to heal, I'm going to keep coming by and just seeing what else it costs, and I'll pay his way. I'll continue to pay his way until the healing is complete. And sometimes we can give up when we start a good work and we're so enthusiastic, but then we give up. Because sometimes the person we're trying to help doesn't receive it in the way we were hoping. Well, there's other things that get in the way. And yet, as Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Are you already helping the poor and loving your neighbour? Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on your neighbour, either the one next door or the one halfway around the world. We have an opportunity to reach out with the love that is the way of loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. You see, I see the story of the Good Samaritan as a great representation of the way that compassion works. We choose to see the need, we answer the cry, we overcome the difference, we refuse to give up. And as I say, the Samaritan does something very significant in this moment. When he says, I'm not the best placed person to care for this man any longer. I've seen the immediate need and I've done what I can, but I need to resource someone else to do that. And that's what we do through compassion. You know, those of us that are in this room, we're not the best placed people to care for a child in poverty. In, in a place like Thailand or the Philippines or somewhere in Africa, Ethiopia, Rwanda. So what we do is we, we place these children in the care of the local church. And we say, we're going to continue to resource you to, to continue to walk with this child, to release them from poverty in Jesus' name. And we're going to continue to do that until the healing is complete. That's what child sponsorship is about. We see the need and we do answer that cry. And we say, we're going to be here for the long haul. We're going to be here for that journey. So how do we continue to love our neighbour as we love ourselves? I find it interesting that so often we just think that that's be nice to someone. But of course, that's not what it's about. We first of all have to look at, well, how do we love ourselves? And one of the things we do is we make sure that we have adequate health care, education, food security, all those things. But it's also things like good relationships. And most of all, we make sure that we have good relationship with our Creator God. So if we're not actually introducing these kids and their families to this God that we serve, how are we actually loving them? That's got to be part of it too. And there are three distinctives of compassion. First of all, that we are Christ-centered. We believe that every child should have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have the opportunity to respond to it. We are child-focused and I love it when I 
back when travel was a thing, uh, when I go to see kids in compassion projects around the world and, and I can ask any of the mentors, the volunteer mentors or the, the, the caseworkers there, I can say, tell me about that child or that child. I can point out any child, they'll tell me their name, the family's names. We are child focused. They, each child is known, loved and connected in with their local church. And we are church-based, and this is another thing that I absolutely love, because wherever I've been to see Compassion's work, it's not a big sign up there that says, Compassion, we are not about lifting up the name of Compassion, we're about lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. So it's the local church sign, and what does that say to the community? It says, it's these Jesus followers, it's these Christians, the local church that cares for the poor, it's them that cares for the children in this area. There's a great opportunity that we have in this local area to actually serve another area overseas. Several churches in the southern suburbs are joining together to see transformation in a local region in Thailand. And that's what I'm inviting you into today. It's wonderful to let you know that the churches across the cities of Coburn, Melville and Fremantle are coming together to serve the Karen people on the border of Thailand and Myanmar. It's a, it's a group of people that are very much persecuted and that has been happening a whole lot more over the last several months. Over 20 churches across this region are now sponsoring over 500 Karen children. That means that they're affecting not just those children but their families and the local community, affecting them for Jesus Christ, bringing gospel transformation into that area. And you'll have the opportunity to be part of that at the end of this service. We'll give you opportunity to do that. But like all the communities that we serve, of course, COVID has hit those in poverty more than most. I want you to take just a few minutes now. We're going to see a video of an update from Thailand, a recent update from, from there. I am a senior manager of program support in Thailand country and also I am a former sponsor child. On behalf of Compassion Sponsor Child, I would like to say hello and thank you to all of you who are sponsoring children in Thailand. We have 178 church partners in Thailand. So in total we have about 54,000 sponsored children. When our country has to be locked down because of COVID-19, it's become shortage of food and income for the family. The first lockdown was so dramatic because a whole bunch of beneficiaries, parents or family have lost their job. People who rely on that daily labor, they only have a daily food. And that was the first time that seeing children was starving. Top of that, Many communities, many areas ran out of um, water. The majority of our beneficiary families, they are farmers as well, so without water, they can't grow their crops. But because of sponsor that not stop support the children during this pandemic, it's helped a lot. It helped our church partner to be able to help and support with the relief package or emergency kits. They also help not just register children, they reach to all the community and help the hygiene, help with food security during this time. These 
19 year old girl she just lost her father two years ago she said to me she couldn't imagine her life growing up without compassion she can stand up and stay strong because she has the project staff always beside her she got a scholarship into a christian university because the project staff encouraged her just to write a letter telling what she dreams to be children just need someone to be there for them and and that brings hope and it helps children to be able to dream through COVID last year we had many families came to know Christ and accept Christ into their life through the work of project staff they have seen that project staff have been praying for their family for their children that really something gives me hope for this year ahead thank you for all the sponsor you play a big role in the shooting life so to all the supporters for children in compassion I really want to thank you for continually to support these children we love you we are thankful for you stay strong That's just a little of what's happening in Thailand at the moment. But of course, COVID-19, as we know, is, is absolutely supercharging poverty. A United Nations report was released in July that started to talk about some of the things that are happening for those living in poverty around the world. And there's way too much to go through all of it, but I just want to highlight a couple of things in that report. They say that in addition to over 4 million deaths due to coronavirus, between 119 and 124 million people have already been pushed back into poverty and chronic hunger, and the equivalent of 255 million full-time jobs were lost. Now, this is the first time that global poverty has risen in decades, and it's a sharp rise, and it will continue to rise. The pandemic has halted or reversed years or even decades of development progress. Millions of children risk never ever having the opportunity to return to school, even once the pandemic is over. It has had that much of an effect. And many children have been forced into child marriage and child labour due to this current pandemic. Because if you can't work, you can't eat. And so these children are absolutely there, ready to be exploited. And we need to step in and say, this is unacceptable. The poorest and the most vulnerable continue to be at greater risk of becoming infected by the virus and they've borne the brunt of the economic fallout too. It's really made a, a big difference. It's a grim picture. But there's a statement in the article that really hit me. It said, we are at a critical juncture in human history. The decisions and actions we take today will have momentous consequences for future generations. Let that sit with you. The decisions and actions we take today will have momentous consequences for future generations. I started by talking about those days or those time periods that really define us, those defining moments in our lives. And I wonder if this is one of those defining moments for you today. I want to say thanks to those who are already sponsoring children, already interacting with Compassion. You are doing a powerful work. I want to thank you for that and, and ask that you continue to do that in your children's deepest need. But maybe this is the defining moment for you where you say, that is the day that I decided that I would release children from poverty in Jesus' name, that I would not stand by while this continues to happen. The decisions and actions we take today will have momentous consequences for future generations. 
What decisions and actions will we take today as a church, as the body of Christ? What decisions and actions does Scripture call on us to take on behalf of those living in poverty? What decisions and actions will we take both corporately as a community of believers, but also privately as those who name Jesus as Lord? You see, there is something more powerful than poverty for a child. It's the love of Jesus, the encouragement of a sponsor and the care of the local church. At the display out there, you'll see a number of child profiles like the one that you'll see on the screen where you'll see the face of a child, you'll find out a few details about them. As I say, the children that are out there are, are from the Karen people along that Thai Myanmar border. And they desperately need you to step in and say, you know what, I'm going to go the journey with you. I'm going to share Jesus with you. I'm going to put you in a place, just as the story of the Good Samaritan, I'm going to put you in a place where you are going to receive healing and we're going to go on that journey with you. As followers of Jesus Christ, we won't simply offer some bread when we can offer bread for tomorrow, but also we can offer the bread of life for eternity. We won't simply offer a glass of water when we can offer that water for tomorrow, but also the living water for eternity so people never need to thirst again. We want to give a hope that is more powerful than poverty. I implore you to join with me in releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. I want to give you a few ways that you can do that today, how you can be part of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Firstly, as I say, you can choose to sponsor a child. There are children waiting. And if you're already sponsoring a child, may I ask, is there room at the table for another one today? Is there that opportunity? And I'm speaking to just a couple of people here right now. I don't know who's in the room, so I don't know what means you have, but... There's probably some people in this room that can say, you know what, I can, I can sponsor multiple children, whether that be two or three or ten. If you'd like to talk about doing that, then, then please come and talk to me. The need is urgent. The second way you can join me in releasing children from poverty is to talk to me about providing funding for some of the projects that we undertake in communities where we work, such as improving access to clean water or healthcare or building better facilities. If that's something that you're interested in partnering with us on, then, then chat to me after the service. We'd love to have that conversation. And the third is to give some of your time as a volunteer, to become one of our volunteer advocates. And when you get to the table, you'll meet a couple of our outstanding volunteer advocates that are here this morning that help us do what we do that we could not do without talk to me about how you can be part of that, how you can volunteer your time so that you can be helping others to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. We want to see gospel transformation and donating your time can make a big difference. But let's together bring even more of the kingdom into the children of Thailand. I want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here. I know that I've, I've painted a fairly grim picture of what is happening and normally I don't like to have to do that, but we are in desperate times at the moment. We are in a time where people are calling out that they're in a need. And one of the reasons that I shared my story of Haiti right at the start of the message is that we're back in those times where people do not have the food to feed their family because they've been told you need to lock down for your health and yet they're not able to even get food to put on the table for their families. We know that this is the situation that we're in. The good news is that in sponsoring children, in supporting the mission of what we do, we're actually, we're not just patching up something out of a sense of guilt, we're actually saying we can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people so that we can give them a hope for tomorrow, but a hope that stretches into eternity. And that's the greatest hope of all. We want to be able to do that together. 
So thanks once again for the opportunity to be here. I look forward to chatting to, to many of you after the service. Let's pray. Lord God, we do want to thank you that you choose us to be your co-workers. It continues to blow my mind that even though we mess it up so often, that you are always there inviting us to be part of your plans for this world. Lord, we've talked about defining moments and I pray that today will be a defining moment for some people here in this congregation that they will say, I want to be part of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. I want to see children, their families, their communities come to know the God that I serve. Lord, let that be the story of today. In Jesus' name, amen.